Dawn of Mantis is brought to you by Redbeard Sound. Redbeard Sound provides music production, audio editing, and live sound engineering, and is where Dawn of Mantis records our podcast. You can find Sam's information on our website, dawnofmantis.com, or at redbeardsound.com. Extra, extra, Dawn of Mantis now has a merch store. There are t-shirts, long and short sleeve, as well as hoodies. Just go to dawnofmantis.com and click the t-shirt link. And while you're there, you can check out our Patreon. Quiet your mind. Ever since the Earth has circled the sun, there have been fantastic tales of wonder and mystery that the faint of heart dare not discuss. Three. Brave, uninformed souls have the brass to tackle every extraordinary happenstance from the modern age to the dawn of Mantis. Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake it is said never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed When the gales of November came early Joe, do you love that song? I love it. I do, I do love that song. Who's the artist, Joe? That was Gordon Lightfoot. The great Gordon Lightfoot from Canada. And we're going to talk a little bit about Canada, yeah. right? Yes. What do we got tonight? I've got a Canada Dry in my right hand. Very good. Very good. Gordon Lightfoot in my ears. Hey, it's all, it's all, you know, it's all Canadian. Canadian. Yeah. Yeah, from Canadian. The theme. It's the theme. That's the theme. The, over, the overarching theme is Canada. Yes. We're going to be talking about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald tonight. That's amazing. But first, we have some people here. That and not just the song. No, no, no the actual yeah. wreck of the actual freighter. Yeah, no, not yeah. the song. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll talk about the song, too. We got James over there in the corner. Hey ho, James, James Dunham in, stu- in studio with us at the lovely sexual Redbeard Sound Studios. Guess who's back? <laughs> back again. <laughs> Dunham's back. <laughs> Sam, how are you? I'm great. All right. Yeah, you back guys from, look back from vacations. Yeah, and yeah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Well, you guys went on vacations, dickheads. <laughs> I stayed here and worked. I held down the fort. That's all right. Somebody has to. Yeah, my vacation was just. Toting a 14-year-old, well, and my son went too, but my 14-year-old daughter around to all the places that she had to go dance. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Branson and then down to Orlando for a week. Yeah. And, uh, man, it was hot and rainy down there. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it was. 
So, did it storm while you're there? It did. Yeah, I thought there were some pretty yeah, crazy storms. Yeah, hurricane coming was coming through. Oh, that's right. It it was. It yeah. was about the time you were. Yeah, it was. It it was still way down south uh, when okay. we first got there. But the night before we flew out was whenever it you know hit the west side of the Florida coast and. It, it wasn't bad in Orlando. It okay. kind of, you know, stayed west and then swooped up north across the the top, you know, panhandle. Yeah. And uh, it never really affected us a whole lot, except for Didn't a little bit. Flights. Yeah, a little it bit. did a little. Yeah. About an hour, but it wasn't bad. Yeah. Old I, Sam was sure scared as he stood and he stared out the window at the coming storm. You ain't kidding. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, James. So, yeah, I, I, I want to live through a hurricane. I've lived through tornadoes. Yeah. I've lived through, we have earthquakes now. I've lived through two earthquakes. I think you'd be rocked like a hurricane. Probably. You'd be probably. rocked pretty hard, according to, to scorpions. It, it would be cool to experience as many nat- natural disasters as, as one can, you know? Earthquake and typhoon back in WWF. That's two of them. We can do the hurricane, uh, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe there'll be, a, you know, we'll live through a volcano someday, you know. If you go to the Jinx, if you go to the Jinx Aquarium, there's a thing you can put a couple of bucks in, and it says Hurricane Simulator on the top. Have oh, you seen I've those? I've seen that. Yeah. But there's like video screens on the inside, and the whole time it's tornado videos. Uh-huh. It's so <laughs> the whole time. I, I, I noticed that. Yeah, did you notice? I did. <laughs> it's like, it's come on, come on. You can't see. <laughs> I guess if it was hurricane videos, it'd just be well, like you're, wind. You're right? in Oklahoma. You know, there's no hurricanes. Yeah, in Oklahoma. yeah, that's true. Maybe that. Yeah, but they're, maybe they're making it fit the context or the place you're in. Hey, what does a tornado have in common with your ex-wife? What's that? First they suck and they blow and then they take your house. <laughs> or they try. Or they try. <laughs> well, there, you know, there, there, there's a similar joke. <laughs> you, you know what a an Arkansas divorce and an Oklahoma tornado have in common? What's that? Yeah, with either one, someone's losing a trailer. <laughs> There you go, folks. <laughs> Entertained yet? We got more of those in the wheelhouse or the mill house or whatever you say. Hey, Ivan went to Vegas. I did go to Vegas. It was crazy. I probably won't go back for a long time, but it's good that I was able to go. I won 100, bu- 100 bucks playing that magnetic horse game. They're little plastic yeah. horses. Yeah. The only horse, riding, horse racing I support are little plastic magnetic ones. And, uh, of course, I put in 15, lost all the way down to five, and then got up to 120 off of five. That is a little bit ironic that the gambling I even did was on horses. <laughs> horse yeah. racing. <laughs> and what's funny is one time, my, you know, I'm so, I'm so against horse racing and beating the horse and stuff like that. But one time I put, you know, 10 bucks on one horse. And then when he didn't make it back, I was like, you should have beat him a little bit harder. He could have made it. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I hate horse racing. But little plastic horses are okay. Well, you got to tell our audience what three gentlemen did you watch while you were in Vegas? Well, I didn't expect to see one of them, but I went to see Chappelle and Rogan, and Tom Segura was there. He was yes. kind of a surprise. What a bonus, man. Yeah. Uh, Donnell Rawlings from Chappelle Show was there, and he was high energy. He was amazing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a neat show. Now, instead, of, now these big stadium shows, I don't know if it's just Chappelle or if, if it's other people, they don't have warm up comics anymore. They, well, this Chappelle does it, he has like a DJ. Uh-huh. And so the DJ is like doing songs with you and he's like doing 80 songs. He's trying to get you to sing along and stuff. Um, did Living on a Prayer. That was one of his last songs to pump up the audience. So I thought that was a really neat idea. Instead cool. of a warm-up comic, just have a cool interactive yeah. DJ. That was yeah. that was a really neat idea. 
So meanwhile, I'm getting text updates. You know, Sam's down in Orlando. Ivan's in in uh, in in Las Vegas. They're doing awesome. I'm standing in my front yard holding the Bud Light, watering my wife's roses. Like, yep, all cool. I tell you what, guys, it was really hard. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about for you, Ivan. I'm not a big fan of flying in the first place, and I think I, I, I kind of mentioned that on some of the, yeah. the previous episodes. But coming off of eight episodes of Buddy Holly. <laughs> And then also a bunch of mini manises of, of musicians who died in plane crashes. I had some uneasy feelings about climbing on an airplane and then having a connecting flight in Chicago and then climbing on another airplane. Yeah. And then also the day we flew out, it was storming so you really bad. Between, like As soon as we left here to go to Tulsa, I could barely see 20 yards in front of me when I was uh, driving. I was ooh. like... Boy, this weather's this is gonna be a fun takeoff. And I so wish I would have known what what radio station you were listening because as you're about to pull into the airport, it goes this goes out to Sam from Joe and it's leaving on a jet plane. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like you son of a bitch. I've never I've like I you know I've flown quite a few times and I don't think I've ever seen such low visual like like visibility yeah right? like yeah. such low visibility to as where it's that. like foggy the whole time. Yeah, well until we got. Out of Oklahoma, I yeah. think. You, know? you probably jumped over it. You are probably up over it by that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, like, first that's... first going, like, on takeoff and, and, and the initial climb. And that's oh, turbulence, gosh. too. You got a lot of turbulence yeah, was... when you got all those clouds. Yeah. You I wasn't... was thinking about all them episodes, man. <laughs> well, one of, before one of our flights, the pilot said, sorry for the delay, but we had a mechanical issue. But it seems like it's okay now. He said something like that. It's like, <laughs> it's like, so we're going to go ahead and shove off and head to, you know. We're going to wing it. Do you want this episode's a boot? What's this a boot? Uh, this episode's a boot, the wreck of the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald. All right. Not the song, but the uh, the freighter there that went across the Great Lakes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. I am going to talk a little bit, since a huge part of this story does involve the Great Lakes, let's talk just for a minute about the Great Lakes. Yeah. And let's kind of it. set this up. Some Great Lake history. Lake Superior, Huron, Michigan, Ontario, and Erie are a collection of five freshwater lakes whose total surface area is nearly 95,000 square miles, or over 152,000 square kilometers, for those of you up in Canada. That's roughly equal to the states of Hawaii, Maryland, South Carolina, West Virginia, Massachusetts, and Connecticut combined. Wow. Big-ass lakes. Lake Superior alone is the largest freshwater lake on Earth and the second largest lake of any kind in the world. The Great Lakes comprise 21% of the world's total fresh water and collectively boast just shy of 10,000 miles of shoreline. That's crazy. The Great Lakes are so massive that they are often referred to as inland seas because they have many characteristics of the ocean, such as rolling waves, sustained winds, massive depths, distant horizons, and strong currents. Yeah, I'd say that puts them in the category. Yeah, and like they, I've, I've read accounts from, like if you're out on one of the Great Lakes, you may as well be, you, you can't tell the difference between sure. that and the ocean. Yeah, unless you, there are places in the Great Lakes, I mean, you go out to it and you can't see any land in yeah, any direction. Yeah, yeah. curvature. As I said earlier, not on the podcast, but uh, as we were taking off in Chicago, my poor blonde-headed daughter said, uh, hey, what ocean is that over there? <laughs> <laughs> well, so Joe, you kind of helped, Joe kind of helped your case a little bit, you know? He, yeah, he did. Yeah, so that's, there we go. I was like, the, well, I believe that's a great lake. Yeah. That's the superior ocean, honey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's the Michigan one. Oh, the Michigan ocean. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
But yeah, all those same characteristics make the lakes notoriously perilous, as many thousands of sailors has learned the hard way. Mm -hmm. The Great Lakes region has been inhabited since 10,000 B.C., by many uh, different Native American tribes. However, the first supposed exploration of the lakes by ship was by the French explorer La Salle on a 60-ton vessel known as the Griffin. La Salle loaded the uh, Griffin with supplies and set sail on August 7th, 1679, following the north shore of Lake Erie to the mouth of the Detroit River and then on, west, uh, on the west shore of Lake Huron on the Straits of Mackinac and Green Bay. There, LaSalle loaded the griffin with furs and other goods he'd purchased from the Indians and instructed his captain to sail back to Lake Erie while he led a small group of men and remained ashore to explore the land. Mm -hmm. That was a good idea on his part because that was the last time the griffin or her crew was ever seen again. And it is almost certain that the small vessel succumbed to the lake's treacherous conditions and sunk. He's thinking, good call, go me. Good call. You take the ship back. No, I'm sorry. You take this ship back. And I'll meet you there. <laughs> Where did we get that audio recording of the guy? I didn't think they had that. That's actual. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Actual audio of LaSalle. Sam's been looking for MP3s. <laughs> sounded like Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably alive back then, too. <laughs> Keith Richards was the first to explore. He <laughs> <laughs> was with him. It is fitting that the first major vessel to sail the Great Lakes would sink. It is estimated that since that time, over 6,000 ships and 30,000 sailors have met their end on the lakes. a lot of ships. But despite the random storms and rogue waves, the lakes proved to be the most efficient way to move people and supplies during the settlement of the region throughout the 16 and 1700s. This caused many cities to pop up along the more popular freight destinations, which caused a huge inflow of immigrants in the 1800s, which in turn called for more ships to carry more freight and more people. It was Mm -hmm. a cycle, you see. Yeah, yeah. When the Welland Canal opened in 1824 and the Erie a year later, barges would then deliver freight from the middle of North America all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. By 1848... The Illinois and Michigan canals created a completely inland waterway from New York City all the way to New Orleans. And that had to be wow. super beneficial. Huge back I mean, then. Think about all the doors in the economy that opened. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it it really, I don't know, supercharged like the growth of the whole nation yeah. and the development of those regions. You got a commodity, now you got somewhere to go with it instead yes. of just these local yokels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Back to the lakes themselves, though. As the 1900s came, iron ore, coal, and copper began to be moved up and down the lakes, along with the never-changing or ever-changing supplies of food and other necessities. As railroads were developed around the country and the lakes, the need to move more freight at once increased greatly. This is a fun fact, by the way, on the side that I had to mention. During the 40s and World War II, the United States Navy sailed two aircraft carriers into the Great Lakes to provide naval aviators a safe place to train landings and takeoffs from the carriers. Oh, that's neat. That's neat that we had that. I thought that was cool. Yeah, very beneficial. Definitely big enough. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For our whole whole fleet. If you can do it there, you can do it out in in the ocean. That's cool. Yeah, very neat. Very neat idea. Uh, This water's not... Salty, is that going to have an event? No, no, <laughs> yeah, no, Lieutenant, yeah. no, yeah, I, I doesn't matter. I, I didn't, I crashed that landing, it was because the water didn't have salt in it. Yeah. I'm ready for the salty water, yeah, I, th- I need sodium, yeah, and then it's no, you're just a shit pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, and I know there's like 
nautical terms for this and stuff. I love, which by the way, we're going to get into a bunch of that. I love this. Mm-hmm. Sam, I see why Sam is really into the whole, you know, ship nautical thing. Like the studio has a lot of pirate stuff and, and ships and schooners and stuff. And I kind of see, I kind of see the romanticism in that, like with all the jargon they use and what we're going to get into, but I don't know what the technical term for it, but wherever the waterline is on the hull. So I wonder if you took the exact same ship out of the ocean and sailed it up into the lakes. I wonder if that waterline would be higher up on the ship because you, you said it would have to be, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Uh, it would. The The ship would be lower in the water in fresh water. Okay. That's cool. I never yeah. really thought about that. Yeah. But but don't they like, uh, they keep uh, like a diesel or something in the, in like the hull of a ship to control like, oh yeah, like control the depth. Yeah. Like for a ballast. Uh, yeah. System, they'll yeah. Add, a, they add a certain amount of diesel. So I, they just I compensate diesel. to yeah. k- to keep the water. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a fluid basically. I don't yeah. know why they use diesel because I'm, I'm sure it's probably the buoyancy of the diesel too. Maybe. I don't know. That makes Maybe sense. Maybe something about it wouldn't freeze. I know too. When they like raise ships that have sunk. They use like these big balloons full of diesel to float them up. Full of diesel. Full of diesel. Wow. Yeah. Diesel must have a. Uh, it must be better than water as far as like buoyancy. It's, it's lighter than water. Yeah, the whole density column experiment we did not. And I guess they couldn't use any type of air or gas that low down because it would just cave in the balloons, right? They would have to. Yeah, use... basically, it has to be something more dense. Huh, that's yeah. cool, man. Anyways, the increased need for hauling capacity called for ever bigger boats, leading up to the commission and construction of the vessel we are discussing tonight, which was at the time the largest vessel to ever sail the Great Lakes, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. All right. Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was a major investor in the ore and minerals industries and was the first American life insurance company to commission such a ship. They wanted the largest, longest ship allowable, which was uh, governed by the not-quite-yet-completed St. Lawrence Seaway, a system of locks, channels, and canals that capped off a ship's length at 730 feet. Thus, the new ship, which was going to be named the Edmund Fitzgerald, after Northwest Mutual's chairman of the board, was designed to be 729 feet. Mm. One foot shy. Wow. They hit right, went right to the limit, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a kid, like... You get five more minutes, and it's like, and you set a timer or whatever. Yeah. It's like, okay, your timer's up. And it's like, no, I've got two seconds left. <laughs> you know? No, I'll, you don't. I'll tell my toddler, we'll play for just a little while, or you can watch your tablet for just a little while. And when I tell her no, she's like, she'll say, just a couple more whiles. Yeah, a couple more whiles. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> uh, now, they contracted Great Lakes Engineering Works to build the ship, which had a dry weight of 26,000 tons had three cargo holds, and was powered by massive coal-fired boilers, at least until they were upgraded to burn oil in 1971. Now, compared to the Titanic, the ship was a floating footlocker with the captain's quarters, but compared to other freighters, the Edmund Fitzgerald was pretty swanky. She had furnishings designed by J.L. Hudson Company, which included deep pile carpeting, tiled bathrooms, drapes over the portholes, and leather swivel chairs in the guest lounge. By the way, always keep a drape over your porthole. <laughs> I was going to comment on that. You oh, I stole it from it. you. I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say, even you have drapes on your portholes? <laughs> you must be rich. <laughs> Don't go aboard that ship. Oh, they've got undraped portholes about. It's a horrible place. Go on. <laughs> there were also two guest staterooms for passengers, air-conditioned crew quarters, a large galley, and two dining rooms. 
She also had several state... By the way, all boats are girls. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. She also had several staterooms below decks. Oh, I'd like to get below her decks. For important corporate clients. As far as the business end... Oh, I'd like to see your business end. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the Edmund Fitzgerald. You guys are 13. I swear to God. Hey, I said none of those things. <laughs> either. You've, you've got like a fake meat suit around you, and you're really like a 13-year-old kid inside there. That's true. There's something wrong with That's that. That's true. As far as the business end, the Edmund Fitzgerald's <laughs> pilot house. Pilot house? <laughs> oh, I'd like to see her pilot house. Included all the latest up-to-date state-of-the-art equipment. <laughs> no comment. All right. The Edmund Fitzgerald's christening and launch. Oh, I'd like to christen. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was trying to get Sam to spit out his Cana- Canadia dry. It took place on June 7th, 1958. However, the ceremony was not exactly a smooth one. When Edmund's wife, Elizabeth, tried to break the wine bottle over the ship's bow, the most important custom in every ship's christening, by and the way. And it sank it. BTO. <laughs> That's what it's sake. The end. Man, what's with this bottle? <laughs> I think I stole that from something. Didn't I think I, it was like the Simpsons. Family Guy or Family something. Guy. I, I don't remember. I believe so. He smashes it in and it knocks a hole in the hole and it, yeah. Yeah, it sinks. Yeah. That's still great, man. It took her multiple attempts to actually get the bottle to break. Oh, that's not good. That's not a good omen. No, it's not. Once she finally succeeded, it took nearly 40 minutes for the workers to remove the ship's keel blocks to launch her into the water. And when they did, she awkwardly slid in sideways. Oh, I'd like to see her awkwardly slide sideways. Crashing into a pier and creating a huge wave that soaked many of the 15,000 spectators. I bet it did. They, they knew it was going to do that. Did they? they did. <laughs> it's like where you stand by that log ride at the mm-hmm, Silver, exactly. Silver Dollar yeah. City. Exactly. Like, I just, hope I don't get wet. You're just waiting on the splash. Well, if I go in the summer, that's where I stand and get a little refreshment and then walk away with wet feet. You know, I found that, that uh, that's not very conducive to the rest of your walk around because you got swamp crotch after that from the bog water that comes up. Next thing you know, you're all red and angry down there, a little stingy. Then... Not that this is based off a true story, but you can't find any desitin or any Vaseline, but you find a stick of chapstick, okay. and you no. melt it down a little bit and use that. Yeah. That's just a, that's just a helpful hint. Doesn't, that, doesn't that have like menthol in it or something? <laughs> no. I mean, if you don't use it, if it has menthol, make sure you get like cherry flavored or something. <laughs> that's why I, when I, when I can afford to retire, I'm going out West. I don't think you get that out West. Swamp crotch. I think that when you sweat, it actually evaporates and does its job. That's why I love it out there. I think. I, I was hot out there when I was out there last week, but it wasn't unbearable like it is here at like 85. Well, I tell you, Florida was, I just didn't like it. Oh, it's It was humid probably like yes. this, but worse. It's, yeah. more, it's more the humidity. Water. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the humi- it's a, definitely the humidity yeah, it's there. It's more of a wet heat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's all we have around here. Even, even, even what I, I talked to a local and they said the winters are even better here. Because he lived in Mississippi before he moved out there 20 years ago. And he said the winters are even not as cold because it's dry. And because it gets cold in the desert at night in the winter. We were just walking around and, and you know, it was, if it wasn't raining, there was, there were was some sunny days out there. But even the overcast days, oh, it yeah. was still like, if it wouldn't have been so humid, it would have been nice. But it was just like. I can't breathe. And you know, I think, like, it, I think it always is. It is. Yeah. Just yeah. Miserable. It's not going to be low humidity. All the, the golf's churning that stuff all up all the time. So, yeah. Fun place to visit, not to live, right. is what I'd say. Everyone in Florida, at the end of the day, has that butt crack line of sweat in their <laughs> underpants. 
You know what I'm talking about. And then you got those things on the guys, like on their chest, on their chest and yes. below their two boobs. That the sweat, that, that, the, the sweat cross, yeah. upside down sweat cross. Mine forms like a heart. Oh, it does. Kind That's of cool. a heart shape. That's cute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. That's cute. <laughs> I don't ever sweat. Oh sure, yeah. Me and James are on stage sweating profusely. Oh, I thought you, I thought that was part of the act. I thought you guys secretly sprayed yourself with a bottle. <laughs> it's like, man, there's no way they could be sweating that. They're much. glistening now. Stand in front of the fan. <laughs> <laughs> One man present. So to recap, big ass ship goes in the water. Boom! Splashes the spectators. One man present at the launch supposedly had a heart attack and died later that night. Hmm. So the Edmund Fitzgerald took a life even before it was all the way in the water. Huh. Yeah. And embarrassed them on the bottle breaking and wouldn't come off the keel. Man, this is mm-hmm. ill-fated. Yep. <laughs> I compare those two things to the guy dying. <laughs> <laughs> Not only did a, did a guy die. Three terrible, horrible things. She couldn't break the bottle. I know. It's first. so embarrassing. <laughs> Would you rather be dead or embarrassed? That's like the, you oh my me. God, really quickly. If you want to see the most single embarrassing thing I've ever seen in my life, and I feel so horrible for this woman to this day, it was at a hockey game, and she walks out to sing the Canadian National Anthem, and she gets like a line or two in and forgets the line. Oh, I think so I've seen that. everybody's like, boo, so she walks off, composes herself, walks back out to have another go, slips and busts her ass on the ice in front of like 10,000 people. Everyone's laughing. She gets back up and hobbles back off. It's like, I feel... Poor so lady. terrible for that lady. What's the song? So you had a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> why couldn't why couldn't all them people have been nice and just like started Help singing her? along Sing. with her? Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm saying. As you were saying that, I was thinking that. Like, help her. You know the words. Yeah. Like you're 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 too afraid to get out there and sing it, so you're gonna boo her. Oh, you know the word boo. Very good. Help me out with these lyrics. I thought Canadians were supposed to be nice. I think they are. I think they are most generally compared to Americans. Do- but there was just a bunch of D-bags. No, to defend them, it's probably like sacrilege to F up the Canadian National Anthem. Oh, that's true. Because yeah. I bet, I mean, I, I bet, I know, there you can look up videos of people in America. Like Michael Bolton, there's a video of him where he was singing the National Anthem at something, and there was a part, I guess, that he had forgotten the words to, but he had it written on his hand. So he, he like puts his hand up on the microphone as he's singing, and you can see him lift his hand up and open one eye, <laughs> and everybody automatically is like, boo! <laughs> you didn't remember the words, you son of a bitch. Yeah, man. So I think it's just the fact that she didn't remember the words. And plus the guy in office space. I feel bad for that guy, Michael Bolton. <laughs> yeah. I love his entire catalog. Uh, yeah. I love that movie. All right. So yeah, despite the very shaky start, though, the Edmund Fitzgerald, now officially the largest boat ever to sail the Great Lakes, gained her composure and went on to complete nine days of sea trials, performing up to standard in every category. Joe just read all that off his hand. (laughs) Boom! In September 1958, Northwest Mutual signed a 25-year contract with the Ogle Bay Norton Corporation to operate the Edmund Fitzgerald, and the ship was handed over to Captain Bert Lambert and his crew. On September 24th, on her maiden voyage, the ship broke a record for the largest load... Carried through the Sioux locks. You don't say. Any comments? No. Interesting. (laughs) And with the Ogle Bay, with this Ogle Bay Norton designated Edmund Fitzgerald the flagship of their fleet. Yeah, it was impressive. It was a huge load. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, the Sioux locks are a set of parallel locks that allow ships to move uh, up from Lake Superior to the 
other Great Lakes. I was watching some kind of History Channel thing, and they were talking about some inventor that invented a new way it, instead of the locking dam, lock and dam system where it floods water in and it raises the boat up. This one had like a had like a door the same size as a channel, and what it would do is it would push water in the it would it was like a hydraulic thing and it would push water and when it would it would raise up the whole boat oh cool and it would just keep pushing behind it the whole time and it would go like around and up the hill and it would carry that dude that's like, awesome and then when it got up to that top it would like recede and pull back and the water would rush back but then the boat was already gone that's that awesome. is awesome yeah it's really cool how it worked yeah but it wasn't they said it was so expensive to build it wasn't commonly put out as much as the lock and dam system even yeah. the lock and dam systems that's pretty so, cool yeah. too like, yeah. I, like it's it's crazy you just fill up you know just like you know your bathtub just fill it up and watch your boat rise up and then yeah it's like that's, an that's elevator cool. for boats yeah. Yeah. yeah it's really neat it takes a long time though i think they said this this would have gotten more boats in and out faster huh. um this system but it's super expensive and technical to build yeah and ma- maintenance was, was killing people because it'd start leaking or killing the project because of the money, you know, not killing people. It's <laughs> Sorry. No, that didn't happen until later. Yes, we're getting there. Good segue. <laughs> For the next 17 years, the Edmund Fitzgerald carried T-A-C-O-N-I-T. Is that taconite or tassonite? I believe it's taconite. Taconite? Carried taconite from How you spell my- it? T-A-C-O-N-I-T-E. Taconite. Posthumous. Posthumous. It carried it from mines near Duluth, Minnesota, to ports in Detroit and Toledo, among others. Are you going to get it to say it? Taconite. 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 All right. A round trip between Superior, Wisconsin, and Detroit, Michigan would take about five days. And this, along with the trip from Superior to Toledo, was the Edmund Fitzgerald's main routes. Although she sailed to several other ports as well. The mighty ship broke record after record, usually breaking her own records because no one else even came close. In 1969, the freighter carried its largest load ever, 27,402 tons. Wow. That's some load. She set seasonal haul records on six different occasions and by 1975 had completed 748 trips around the Great Lakes, totaling over a million miles, which is roughly 44 trips around the globe. Wow. That's amazing. Just a big load. Yes. But in the 70s, the Edmund Fitzgerald was not only known as a priceless workhorse for her owners, but had become a beloved fixture of life on the Great Lakes. One man who greatly helped endear the Edmund, uh, image of the Edmund Fitzgerald to those who lived and worked on the lakes was the ship's third captain. This is one reason why I'm really glad we're doing this story. His name was Peter P. Pulser. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nothing... You assholes. No, no. I laughed so hard when I was typing this. I, I'm smiling big time. It, it's a very it's a very funny name. Peter Pulser. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just okay. I was like, thank you, podcast gods. Peter P. Pulser. I wonder what the P stood for. <laughs> I don't know, but I would have dropped it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Peter Pulser. Yeah. I don't think people like, said his name Peter like that. Peter Pulser picked a peck of pickle peppers. <laughs> <laughs> There's Peter Pulser. I'd be like, no. Pause. It's Peter Pulser. Actually, it's Peter P. Pulser. Yeah. Peter P. <laughs> Peter P. sounds like some kind of weird rapper. Yo, it's Peter P. Peter P. up in the house. <laughs> Maybe not. So look, this guy was quite the character. Okay. 
Sounds like it. He would blast loud music through the ship's intercom system while passing near populated areas. I don't know what he played. Peter P. passing through populated areas. That's hard to say. That, yeah. yeah, I didn't write that well. What if like he's all going through and people are like on shore eating and they hear like, you can be my bitch. <laughs> he's playing like gangster rap. I think that's actually a song called by Master P. You can be my bitch. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't know. I'm not informed. In I, those I, dude, I actually think that is. I believe you. You can look it up, though. I am going to look it up. Well, other than playing gangster rap, as he went out, whatever music he played, he would also come out of the captain's quarters wielding a bullhorn that he would use to talk to tourists when the big boat, big boat passed through the Sioux locks. Oh, yeah? He would just talk yeah. to them. What did he say? Do you, does it say what he said? No. Probably just. But they liked him, so it wasn't yeah. like, ah, screw you, or whatever, yeah. like. <laughs> Look at you eating your sandwich with your big fat wife or anything like that. And he was saying nice things. I think he was like kind of like a tourist guide, like the guy that drives that open top bus through like yeah. Beverly. And over here is yeah. where Ellen DeGeneres lives. No one gives a shit. Let's keep driving like that. So <laughs> he's kind of like that guy on the water. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could hear that. Not only was Peter Pulser a likable and humorous captain, but he was also skilled. Okay. As most of the, <laughs> the fits that now, by the way, uh, I very popular nickname for the Edmund Fitzgerald was the Fitz or the oh, Big yeah, Fitz. The Fitz. Mm-hmm. Cool. Most of the Fitz records were set under the command of Peter Pulser. Okay. Having said that, it looks like most of the incidents that damaged the Fitz were also under his command. But Braggadocious, all- <laughs> um, crazy behavior, right? And he's just kind of a big personality, yeah. pushed it to the limits. Yeah. Yeah. Peter was always pushing it to the limits. <laughs> yes. He was always ramming into everything. Yes. <laughs> Sounds like it. Causing damage. Causing some damage. Some serious damage. <laughs> Full of semen. You know, the crew. Don't look at well, me like that. It's not the sea, though. Well, well <laughs> kind of. Lakeman. I think they were called semen, though. Oh, they were? I think, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So was the fits long and hard and full of semen? <laughs> Does that check the box? Commanded by Peter. I don't think that checks. It probably the box. who? Yeah. <laughs> you just left it out there. I had to. I had to walk through the door. <laughs> okay. In Peter's defense, though, all that speed didn't come without risk, right? Like he That's broke right. records, but you're going to get dangerous too. That's what I was thinking. And life on the lakes automatically came with its own set of risks. Sure. Between the random and often violent storms that are prone to pop up there, along with the regular everyday perils that accompany life at sea, the Edmund Fitzgerald had many close calls and several accidents that caused significant damage under all four of her captains. And, and I'm my guess right now, I don't, I don't know anything about this, but metal fatigue from, from those wrecks, it's going to come into play later. I could be wrong. It's a straight guess. But they think, they think the Titanic really was a metal fatigue issue. It had a fire... Um, like, yeah, I read right, about that yeah. recently. A fire inside the ship, like in the boiler, that, one that, of the boiler like, damaged the hull and it was weak already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before so, it ever hit the iceberg. Yep. Yep. So and then it, there's a conspiracy theory and it that hit it wasn't the iceberg the in that exact area. Yep. Where wow. the fire was. Yeah. So, was, did the fire happen before, before. it even set sail? Though? Yeah, before it. Uh, well, either that or it yeah, just that taken was, off. That was the maiden voyage, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 was, it wasn't the night of the iceberg. Or right. Anything. It was it like, like, like well months before. Or so, I guess when it was being built. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That was my question. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Wow. That's there cool. I've never heard that. Yeah. But you're right. Metal fatigue will come into play. Okay. Great. As one of the theories. Well, it's kind of a mystery. Oh, okay. But we're going to go over each theory, and that is one. Sure. Okay. In September of 1969, 
She sustained external damage when she ran aground near the Sioux Locks. Just eight months later, she was damaged again when she collided with the SS Hochelaga. Just four months after that, she sustained yet more damage when again she hit another lock wall. The Fitz, as she was affectionately known, like I just said, hit lock walls again in May of 73 and June of 74, sustaining minimal damage. So lots of little incidents. Yeah. Which might be normal. Sounds like some bad driving to me. <laughs> yes. Yes. Peter was too busy yelling through that bullhorn and playing gangster rap. Yeah. Keep yeah. your eyes on the the what's that Keep big your eyes on the lock. The wheel thing. Yeah. The big wheel. It kept the wheel. Yeah. That, the wheel, Sam. <laughs> what's that thing called? That's Say got it again. The, it's the wheel. That big wooden wheel that has all the handles on it. The helm? The helm. The the Yeah, that's the whole yeah. Keep your eye on that. Three years prior, command of the great ship had been given to Captain Ernest McSorley, a 62-year-old Canadian with over 40 years' experience on the lakes. In fact, he had commanded nine other vessels before taking on the Edmund Fitzgerald. It only took a crew of 29 men to run the Fitz, and although countless men and three other captains had worked the ship since its christening in 1958, McSorley and this final crew of 28 men would be the ones to go down in history. Oh, no. And go down with the ship. Oh, no. Let's get into the sinking. Yeah. It was November 9th, 1975, when the... I feel like I should be talking... I should be telling this as like an old salty sea dog. Go for it. (laughs) It was November 9th, 1975, when the Edmund Fitzgerald prepared for what would be her final voyage. In dock number one at Burlington Northern, she was loaded with 50,000 gallons of fuel and more than 50 million pounds of iron ore pellets. It took six hours to fully load the fits, and another half hour to seal each hatch. It's hard to read when I'm talking like this. (laughs) (laughs) Which consisted of bolting on a seven-ton steel door, each with 68 clamps that had to be tightened manually. Wow, that's a lot of clamps. It was my turn to say something. I haven't said anything for a while. I, what, what little tidbit can I throw in I here? love lamp. Ivan is such an expert on clamps. I am. If I say it's a lot of clamps, it's a lot of clamps. It is. And how many hatches were there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, were you paying attention? I think there were three. Yeah. Yeah, and the door was seven tons. Each one had 68 clamps. Wow. And they had to be... <laughs> is, is that many clamps? Not a... Is the, would that strike you as well, several? If I had to buy sixty-eight clamps, that's a lot of that's a lot of money <laughs> per door. So, per door, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, do the math, folks. This was incredibly important because flooded compartments could literally sink the ship. Mm-hmm. The process was monitored by first mate Jack McCarthy, a robust and lovable Irishman who the rest of the crew had great affection for, especially Captain McSorley. In fact, it is up to the captain's discretion who serves as his first mate. And McSorley and McCarthy had agreed to sail out there last years together. Oh, that's sweet. meant to be. No? That song? No? Yeah, no, that's a great song. I feel like this podcast studio is our ship, sort of. And, and I've chosen to sail out my final years with you two blokes. Joe's at the helm. I'm, no, not really. I think Sam's at the helm. He's oh, got, that's true. Yeah, he is. He's surrounded by monitors. The sliders and, are kind of wheels. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. We're just semen. I'm on the poop deck, just kind of <laughs> staring off into space. <laughs> Thinking about clamps. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of clamps on this boat. <laughs> that's one thing I do know. <laughs> I think I caught chlamydia at that last port. Anyway. Should have clamped it up. Should <laughs> 
Oh, shit. <laughs> the process was mon- Yeah, so we already talked about him. Ready? The loading process was finished a little after 2 p.m., and Captain McSorley guided the big ship away from the loading dock to make her eastbound run. Eastbound and down, <laughs> loaded up and trucking. 26,000 tons and of iron it. ore. <laughs> yeah. We've got a long way to go across the Michigan and Huron. I don't know. That's not even what, what lake they were on. But anyway. What's the fit run? <laughs> They needed a, a small little speedboat driven by some asshole with a mustache and a cowboy hat running out front to keep out them Texas County Mounties. <laughs> I wonder if Captain McSorley had a big old smelly hound dog next to him. Anyway. <laughs> it was the last run of the season before the customary two-month winter vacation shut the shipping lanes down. Several of the crew had served on the fits for years while others were just going out for their first time, like deckhand Tom Benson. The ship's regular cook had called in with ulcers, so Bob Rafferty came aboard at the last minute. So whoever that lucky, ul- lucky the ulcers, yeah. right? Yeah, kept him alive. Yeah, Bob Rafferty, not so much. So yeah, uh, of the few other uh, crew members were George Hall. Oh, my mom just texted me and said, "Hey, have you ever heard of these people?" And it's a little article about the Bloody Benders. She's like, "You wow. should do an episode." I already did it. We did an episode. Been there, done that. Been there, done that, Mom. Come up with some new material, Mom. Just kidding. I love you, Mom. It's going to sound like that's where we get all our ideas. You know what? The British Airways. Oh, yeah. That's right. That came from my sister-in-law. Yeah. And uh, really quick, I just want to say this. And people that, people, it's okay. Speaking of my mom, okay, man? Okay. I want to lay some heavy shit on you guys. Uh Uh-oh. And tell me what would you think about this? I had a dream last night. Okay. I'm at a house, don't know the house, but all my family's around the house, dressed in black, eating. It's pretty quiet. It's kind of a low vibe. Uh Uh-oh. I look out in the driveway and see a hearse parked out there, and the back hatch door thing is open. So I walk out. What? Well, a hearse door would swing out. Okay, it was it was it was open that way. No, my hearse. Sam's fact checking. My hearse had opened. Well, I owned a hearse. So you did? Yeah. Oh, what for? Just because it's cool? Yeah. Just to be That's badass. awesome. I had a 74 Caddy Hurts. Dude, what? Yeah. I want to see a picture. He sold it not too long yeah. ago, a couple years ago. Just last year. Last year. Did you haul gear yeah. in it? Mm, never really. A lot of bands used to haul gear. I tried to get, uh, Mr. I tried to get Mr. Barnes yeah. to buy it. Yeah. 74 Caddy Hurst. Yeah. You ba- where? Who'd you sell it to? A guy in Springfield. Dude, that is awesome. Was it black, white? Mm-hmm. It, was yeah, black? it was black? Oh, yeah, I want a picture uh, of this. To die for, to die for. So I'll, we, I'll one up. go for it. We go see ahead. the hearse, or I, I see the hearse. I walk up to the back, and there's not a casket in it, but there's two kind of gurneys side by side with two people. One people, one people, one people per gurney. I walk up, it's me on the right and my mom on the left. Oh, no. Laying face up on the gurneys. Okay. And what's weird is, I was like not disturbed at all, and I took a comb out of my pocket, and in the dream, my body, my dead body on the gurney had a full, beautiful head of hair. This is funny. And I ran a comb through my hair, kind of like fixing, like, oh, my hair's a little messed up. People are going to see this, right? Then I walk back in. My alive mom is in the kitchen, and I told her, and she had a smile on her face, by the way, her body. I walk in there. And I was like, hey, I just went out, saw the bodies, fixed my hair. You had a smile on your face. And she just kind of laughed. And she was like, that sounds like me. That's how to go. And then I woke up. 
So, like, what the hell would that was represent? It, Thanks, Sam. Well, I'm just wondering, was it a head of hair, like a James hair? Like, long and lustrious like no, that? it was the or same was like, length. Same like length. an Ivan? Same length I have now. Oh, okay. I just didn't have a thin spot back here. Mm. I think you're focusing on the wrong part here. <laughs> or, or, or is he? Was this all just a dream about my bald spot that I don't like? Yeah. Well, that was the corrective accent, action that you took. That's right. You hey, know, involved there we your go. Hair. Yeah. You were like, oh, I'm dead. You're like, oh, my hair's messed up. Yeah. What does that say about you, Joe? Like, oh, no, I'm dead, but even, I have hair. Even in death, you want to look good. <laughs> that's because you're, that's, that ties into your social media obsession. Oh, yeah. That social media that I don't have. <laughs> Tell your mom to go back and listen to episode 113. That's the Bloody Benders. Yep. Oh, okay. 113, in case anyone else is I think there. I think there's an internet site where you can go and have your dreams interpreted. Yeah. Oh, we've talked about dream interpretation quite a bit. <laughs> a few of the other crew members were, like we said, George Hall, Bruce Hudson, Mark Thomas, Carl Peckle, David Weiss, Johnny Poliak, and Gene O'Brien. Just a few of them. Okay. As they headed east at 14 knots, no one on board knew that two volatile air masses were on a collision course and would soon turn Lake Superior into a churning, treacherous environment. I have a question real quick. Was mm-hmm. it Gene O'Brien or was it Gene O'Brien? Gene O'Brien. <laughs> no, it's Gino. Yeah. Gene O'Brien. He's the <laughs> nicest guy of the Brian boys. <laughs> Sounds Gino. like it. Owns a pizza place. Gino's. Gino Brian's hey, Pizza. go get a pie at Gino's. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds awesome. He was saving up to start a pizza place, but he died on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, man. Spoiler. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me sad. Well, although the National Weather Service had predicted a storm, they had projected it to be moving south of Lake Superior, leaving the ship out of danger for the most part, they thought. They should have had the AccuWeather app. Yeah. <sighs> It just existed. Oh, yeah, that's right. But no, there were people that knew better, though. We'll get to that. Okay. A little over two hours after the Edmund Fitzgerald had departed, Captain Bernie Cooper sailed the Arthur Anderson out of her port in two... That's just hard to call Arthur Anderson her, but I get it. It's a boat, but the boat's named... Just name the boats after ladies. Like the Betty White or something. Yeah. Oh, that's a badass hearse. Whoa. That is such a cool damn hearse, Sam. Did you just drive it all the time? I would just drive it all the time. Oh, and I met uh, Adam Ferrara. Whoa, he's a great comedian. Yeah, and he was like, he it was at a car show at the casino. He was doing a comedy show, and I had the hearse there, and so he was scoping it out. I love that he is such a good comedian. That's so great. Yeah, that's cool. Damn. <laughs> awesome. Sorry. No, no that's, that's okay. cool. Yeah. So, yeah, Bernie Cooper sailed the Arthur Anderson out of her port in Two Harbors, Minnesota, and joined the Fitz, although he was trailing about 10 to 15 miles behind as both big freighters made their way to the Sioux Locks in St. Marie, a two-day journey. As the two ships sailed along, their captains communicated by radio their concerns over the approaching storm, but decided to proceed along the regular route. A few hours later, around 9 p.m., both vessels received a gale warning, predicting winds up to 50 miles per hour and seas running at 10 feet. As was procedure, the crews of both ships rushed to secure everything that could be dogged down, and that's just tied down. Like I, I said, like it. We're going to be getting into some semen talk here. Dogged down, biting the hatches. All right. And to double check the little clamps, those clamps, Ivan, that hold on the, uh, the watertight bulkheads that ensure no water would get in. 
Captains Cooper and McSorley also decided to change course away from the typical southern route to head north away from the storm. They figured that by hugging the Canadian shoreline, they would receive at least some shelter from the northeast gale. As they moved northward through the night, the storm worsened quickly. By 1 a.m. the next morning, winds were gusting at 60 miles per hour, and heavy rain fell in sheets, greatly reducing visibility. Okay, real quick, because yeah. I'm not a scientist or anything. They they use the term gale force winds. So anything that's a gale is stronger than normal winds? It's probably like a minimum. I would imagine it's the minimum amount of speed, but I don't know what that is. I'm going to Google. I thought a gale warning was when someone was about to start playing Crystal Gale on the... Oh! Oh! Hey! Thanks! I like Crystal Gale. I'm here all week. I like her, though. Tried the veal. Don't it make my brown eyes blue? That's a great song. Yeah. I have, a, I have that album. I will not lie. It's a wind of 28 to 55 knots. Okay. Yeah. And by the way, a knot is not so much different than a miles in yeah, mile per close. hour. It's very close. Yeah. I used to think they were a big, but it's, it's very, it's not, it's not that, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were trying to be funny when you no, said I that. wasn't even. It's you just, slipped into a pond. It's just naturally in me. Gale warnings occur when forecast winds range from 34 to 47 knots is what this says. 34 to 47 knots. Okay. Which, crazy on a boat, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Crazy on land, but... On a boat. What did the old rope say that was on the boat for too long? What's I'm afraid not. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We lost four of our nine listeners just then. I I'm, apologize. I'm not, we'll get them back. Not, not laughing at that. <laughs> we'll get them back. I smiled at it. I'll tell you that. I'll just be honest. At 2 a.m., the NWS upgraded its warning from gale to storm. A fact that the crews of both freighters were already well aware of. Despite the conditions, though, Captain McSorley was usually not one to slow down or turn aside. And the slightly lighter and faster Edmund Fitzgerald slowly pulled away from the Arthur Anderson, probably because of a temporarily lull, temporary lull in the winds due to changes in their direction. Hey, did you know this was a storm now? <laughs> <laughs> one guy holding on to the mast. <laughs> no, I had no idea. Well, they just upgraded it to a storm. <laughs> Oh, good. That's why it's so windy. Yeah. I get it now. (laughs) As daybreak came and the storm raged on, McSorley ordered his men to plug on through the storm. Remember, he'd been a captain on the Great Lakes for more than four decades and had seen hundreds of bad storms. He knew what to do and when to do it. Just plug on. Plug on, man. Yep. Plug up. I'm going to start saying that. Plug in and plug on. That's right. Drop in, tune in, turn in, tune in, turn on, and drop out. Right? Tune it. It doesn't matter. Um, He knew what to do and when to do it. So at least up until this point, it was still business as usual and there was no panic on board. However, as the day wore on, a storm was building the likes of which even a seasoned sailor of the Great Lakes had rarely seen. Uh Uh-oh, you changed your voice. That's not good. It's getting serious. Oh, no. Captain Cooper would later say that when they received the projections of this newer, stronger storm, he could scarcely believe it. (laughs) just seems like it needs that voice no it does but it, it, it did need that it honestly did. hurts my throat to talk oh, like that it? so i can't do you it. you got a show coming up you're probably good right <laughs> no show okay we're good okay yeah the nws was calling for winds now up to a hundred miles an hour oh and massive waves shortly after noon the increasingly worried captain spoke again and decided to change course again this time south taking them dangerously close to six fathoms shoal just north of Caribou Island. Oh, that doesn't sound like a great place. (laughs) 
Here, just 36 feet of water covered a minefield of jagged rocks that could tear open a ship's hull like a pop can. Yeah. But it was the shortest and surest way, so the ships set course. The ships fought their way through the 16-foot waves, and by 2.45, the Fitz had climbed about 10 miles ahead of the Arthur Anderson. But as if things weren't bad enough, a blinding snow began around 3 o'clock, causing a total white Lake effect snow. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about that, I think. Yeah, Ivan, or does someone want to explain lake effect snow real quick? Yeah, isn't it just where, isn't it just where winds from the lake swoop up and freeze the what would have been rain, right? Yeah, and I think it also has something to do with like the something about the warmer air above and the cooler water, or and something the, maybe the a, extra humidity above the lake. That's yeah, it. yeah, and it causes yeah, it causes lake effect snow right. down downstream, whichever direction it happens to be the weather's going usually. Usually toward the east, I think, in that part of the world. Yeah, okay. I've, I've heard that. I'm not Depends super on familiar. the jet, jet stream. You yeah. see it on the Weather Channel a lot. They talk about it a lot right there. And it's yeah. very, re- I mean, it is literally just right there, right? It's just right around the lake in that region uh, yeah. right around the shore. Yeah, yeah. my friends that live in Toronto that I work with, they get a lot of lake effect snow uh, because it travels from the lakes to the east. Okay. And isn't it isn't it hard to predict? Like it just kind of hits. I mean, they don't really know when it's going to. You know, I'm not sure. It seems like It seems like I heard somewhere that it's kind of. It's it's harder to forecast than regular regular snow. Seems, seems like it would be. Yeah, conditions have to be perfect for it or something. Well, this reduced Captain Cooper's visibility and only allowed him to see the Fitz position by radar, which was showing the freighter perilously close to Six Fathom Shoal. Just a few minutes later, at three ten in the afternoon, Captain McSorley radioed Captain Cooper with his first sign of trouble. He said. I've got a little problem. My fence rail is down. There are two vents missing, and I've taken a starboard list. Mm. That was the first bad sign. He also told Cooper that his pumps were running at full capacity, but they couldn't get ahead of it, meaning the ship's hull had either split from a stress factor or been damaged by rocks, and water was now rushing in about as fast as they could pump it out. Wow. Yeah. McSorley was now desperate to somehow limp his damaged vessel to Whitefish Point, a harbor that would provide them with some amount of safety against the storm. However, the 100-mile-an-hour winds had damaged his radar masts, disabling it completely. (laughs) Wait, keep that going. Is it the Wellerman? Keep going. He radioed Cooper again at 410 to report this and to ask Cooper to use his ship's radar to keep track of the Edmund Fitzgerald, (laughs) which was now navigating in the blind. (laughs) I love it. It sounds a little too jolly for the dire straits of the situation. That was the only problem. <laughs> it's like, we're having a good time being Wellerman. Yeah, it reminds me of the below deck scene of Titanic where they're drinking beer and dancing around. Oh, yeah, it does. It you really think does. you big, tough, strong men are tough and strong and big? Well, watch this. She just stands on her tiptoes. And then everybody shit their pants collectively. I think at least someone should have been like, well, it's not that impressive. Even Michael Jackson could stand on his tippy toes for just a second. Michael who? <laughs> he won't You'll be bored. See. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> You'll be smitten just like me. <laughs> a time travel on board. <laughs> oh, man, my throat hurts from talking like an old salty sea dog. We have to stop doing that. Okay. I thought of a joke, but I'm not going to say I'm sure there's a band name already. Salty Sea Dog? Yeah, there's got to be a Salty Sea Dog. They opened for Semen at the Scene. Oh, Oh, man. 
Captain McSorley was now relying on Arthur Anderson, on the Arthur Anderson's radar, and his own visual of the light beacon at Whitefish Point to get him there. However, in a cruel twist of fate, just 20 minutes after their radio, what's what? What are you laughing? Radio contact. The storm knocked out the power on shore, shutting off both the radio and light beacons at Whitefish Point. What did what did these guys do to piss off God that much? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Everything that's like, oh well, as long as this happens, we'll be fine. Oh shit, that just went out. It's like every everything was against them, but they didn't really know it. It was. There were probably no thoughts and prayers for them. That's that probably what been happened. Thoughts and prayers. That would have. We wouldn't be talking about this. We're still good. I see the light from Whitefish Point. Oh, that that light just went out. <laughs> as the storm raged on, the crew of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Didn't really give a shit. <laughs> they played cars and drank and passed around old Salty Siona, the whore they'd found in the port. Right <laughs> Once live till we die. What do you say? <laughs> Who cares if you catch chlamydia for dying in an hour anyway? So yeah, 20 minutes after the radio contact storm knocked out power on shore, shut off the radio and light beacons. This left the Edmund Fitzgerald sailing completely blind in a hundred mile per hour winds with 30 foot waves crashing over the bow. Not good. Oh my gosh. The main time you need that light to work. Yeah. It's out. Yep. Of course, I mean, weather conditions, but still. Still though, it was like at least something to sail towards. Yeah. <laughs> All McSorley had to guide him were instructions surrounding by surrounding vessels from their radios. So he just sent out a radio, any ships in the area, you know, where are you? Yeah. Where are you at? Can you see me? What's going on? Another captain of a ship nearby overheard McSorley say, I have a bad list. I have lost both radars and I'm taking heavy seas over the deck in one of the worst seas I've ever been in. Oh, so they did call, did call it seas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were okay. seamen, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they were. At 6.30 that afternoon, the Arthur Anderson was pounded by two rogue waves, each nearly 40 feet in height. Captain Cooper knew these waves were now barreling towards the injured Edmund Fitzgerald, which was already listing and taking on water. Oh, now I have to read different. Hold on. A few minutes later, Mick Sorley radioed for another fix on his ship's position. After answering, Arthur Anderson's first mate, Morgan Clark, then asked how the Fitzgerald was doing, to which Mick Sorley replied, we are holding our own. That's got some real, like, A&E vibes. Yeah, next on the History Channel. Yeah. It was the last time anyone ever heard from the Edmund Fitzgerald. Although she never sent out a distress signal, within just a few minutes, the Fitz disappeared from the Arthur Anderson's radar, and Captain Cooper could not find the lights out his window. Mm. Paint a picture well, my friend. (laughs) And the music helped. It's great. It's awesome. I like it. Roughly an hour later, an air search began, conducted by the American and Canadian Coast Guards. (laughs) <laughs> I'm Canadian. I can't. I don't know why. There no, were it's, it's cool. eight boats docked in Whitefish, and all were asked to venture back out into the storm to help search for the Edmund Fitzgerald. But only two agreed. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just think, what could you do if you found it? I mean, how are you going to pull up next to it and let people on? Or I mean, and and also, I mean, people are in the water and the the swells. I mean, how are you even going to get hold of those people? Right. Yeah, I don't know strange yeah how would you have rescued them that's a good point yeah you still got 30 foot waves and like come on man i know nothing about the ocean but that seems crazy i know yeah so eight boats out of eight 
two agreed, Captain Jim Erickson of the William Clay Ford and Bernie Cooper, who took the Arthur Anderson right back out into the storm. Wow. Yes. After just surviving it. I actually found an old interview with him. He was an old man at this point, but I don't think he was that long. I think he was an older guy at the time, but he was saying he initially said no. He said, I initially said no. And then I went back down to the galley and I was sitting there having a drink and I just was thinking, I can't just sit here and drink. Yeah. I'm sure he's thinking like, how do I live with this? Like, yeah, he, you know, I'm going to go even if I don't, even if I can't help, at least that I know that I did try. Yeah. So that's so, what he yeah. did. So good on him, man. Hats off to him. Both ships crisscrossed the area for the rest of the night, along with the air search and the wood rush. A Coast Guard vessel captained by Jim Hobaugh, that was his his boat, who said the waters of Lake Superior that night and the following days were the roughest he had ever seen. Despite a huge effort in those first days, including dozens of ships, helicopters, and planes, all that was found of the Edmund Fitzgerald were some tattered rafts, a destroyed light bo- lifeboat, and an oil slick. That was until U.S. Navy Lieutenant George Connor detected metallic anomalies on the lake bed that led to the discovery of the sunken ship on November 14th. The big ship had made it to within 17 miles of Whitefish Bay. Yeah, that's nothing compared to how long the journey was. Yeah, they were that close. It's like most car accidents that are fatal are within a mile or two of your own house. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy stat. That may not be true. No, it is. We've talked about that. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. We did some investigation, and that is because most of your trips are within five miles of your house. Just and like I just to- wonder if you almost get too comfortable. Didn't we talk about that? You get too comfortable. As but a lot. But it said a lot of them are just like fender benders. Mm, okay. okay. That, like it's considering that to be accidents, also okay. not like uh, okay. not like fatal accidents, oh, okay. but just okay. so you I know. misstated it. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. But that, but that's how I always thought it to be as well. Like, you know, like like a really bad accident, but when we Googled it, it was more just like, oh, it's a fender bender. Oh, okay, that's right. Good memory. I didn't remember that. So when you're when you're describing this, Joe, I have, I have to think of, okay, th- there were no survivors, right? None. So it's like, I mean, I'm just imagining how could there be, you know, like somebody wasn't even like floating on the surface with the life jacket on or something like that. No. It's almost like they had to all be inside the ship. And yeah, just went down with the ship when it went down. I just kind of wonder yeah. also if if you are floating in the water and and you have those swells like that. I mean, you're probably just going to drown, you know, because you're not just going to be swimming. I mean, the water's yeah, thirty gonna foot sm- swells like oh. coming up over you, the. Yeah, you could. I mean, you would still be floating there even after you were dead, though, as long as the jacket stayed on. It is right? weird. Well, but if you didn't even have that on, if if your lungs were full of water, you'd just sink like a rock. I wonder, so, you know, there's that thing, and I guess it's a thing, that the, the, the captain goes down with the ship, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, I've always, yeah, I guess, I'm assuming that's a thing. I wonder if that's a thing even on, like, the, the Great Lakes, you know? I don't know. I mean, not that they had a choice. Not that any of them had a choice. They all mm-hmm. had to go down with the ship. But it is really weird. I didn't think about that, James, that not one body, you know, like, they had, li- and that's, I don't want to jump ahead, but we, I can guarantee you they were wearing life jackets. You, you would think they would. I mean, it would be like safety protocol. Yeah. You know, as soon as they hit, you know, a certain amount of rough waters or the storm's a certain level or something like that. Yeah. You know, they're going to be like, everybody put on your life jackets, you know. And from being obsessed with true crime for 30 years, I can also tell you a body floats. Yeah. Unless it's I mean, weighted down. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, a body floats, especially when you know if the body gets to a stage of decomposition where you're like producing gases, gases, and yes, like that. You yeah, blo- you blow it up, then you float up. Yeah, that's just how it works. Yeah. So, I, I yeah, remember, you're right. They had to be in there, I guess. I, I don't know if I'm going way far ahead or something, but I did. I did see a documentary. I don't know. It's been a few years ago, and they were showing an expedition that had been done, and and I guess it's pretty hard to dive to because it was like. I don't know, 550 feet deep or something mm. like that. So it makes it kind of a really hard dive. Need James Cameron. And, uh, You're exactly somebody, right. Somebody, I think this was one of the expeditions. There had been other expeditions where they like took a remote sub down, you know, and did video and stuff. But there was some where they actually dove down to the site. And it seems like I remember them, they, they were describing that they found a decomposed body with a life jacket on, on the bottom of the sea. Yeah, you're exactly right, man. Laying face up on the lake bottom. So they got, they think they got to the point, you know, the kind of the message of it was, okay, well, we found this, this person that worked on the ship that still had a life jacket on. So it's like, you know, they felt like they maybe had, you know, a small amount of warning or they had, you know. Oh yeah, that does kind of put out a timetable in a way. Right. Or, you know, as part of safety protocol, you know, they had put on their life jackets. At least one person had. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of extrapolate, well, if one did, probably others did as sure. well, you know. Yeah. So it was just kind of interesting. But, uh, you know, and, and that got me thinking even then, well, why, you know, what the question that I made a while ago was, well, why, why wasn't any, any, any people yeah. found on the surface of the water? And, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking, well, they had to be inside the ship, and they all went down with the ship. Yeah. Maybe that's the safest thing in that case, like, so the water doesn't sweep you over the edge since the rail was all busted off. Well. To get down underneath to where you're more safe. You know, when I was mentioning the other, when he raid, when McSorley radioed out to all the other ships in the area, several of those other boat captains later reported snippets of what they heard him say. And one of those, I didn't put it in the notes, but one of the snippets was he, they heard him yell at a guy to get off the decks. So I think you're right. Yeah. I think he was yeah. telling him, get the hell out and of the decks, come back inside. Because if the waves are big enough and you're outside the ship, it could just sweep you you're away. You're off, yeah. 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 Another thing I was going to mention earlier about the captain going down, going down with the ship, is that so important that we have that like still now? I mean- in, in, unless you got a captain that's suicidal, I mean, couldn't it be at a certain point be like, hey, listen, I didn't want to crash this thing either, but everyone for himself, including me, I don't know. I, it's just, I mean, do you, if it we'll say if everyone else is off, do you think the captain should still have to go down with the ship? No, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'd be like, see you guys. Sorry. I'm going to go down with the ship now. Nope. I'd be like, no, the new new rule, the captain is the first one off the ship. Yeah. <laughs> I am the most important one to be off the ship. I'm a really progressive captain. So <laughs> I, I just want to tell you guys that if stuff goes sideways, I'll be the first one off. So we, yeah, right. we need somebody to talk to to do a, a root cause analysis after this is all done. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we can make things better going That's forward. That's true. Yeah. If the captain goes down with the ship, we don't have anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. He's like the black box. You know, we can get that flight recorder. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess it's the ultimate, like, I didn't mean for this to happen. Like, just know, you know, this is, you know, I'm going to give my life for this. But, you know, if I'm on that boat, I'm going to grab that captain. You're coming with me. I don't care. <laughs> I'll knock him out and put him in my lifeboat. <laughs> You're not going down with the ship. 
In May of 1976, the U.S. Navy sent its unmanned submersible CURV-3, Curve-3, I guess, and found Edmund Fitzgerald lying in two large pieces. Like in James said, in a close to about 540 to 550 feet of water. Um, and the two pieces were laying roughly 170 feet apart. In between the two sections was a large mass of taconite pellets scattered uh, around with wreckage like hatch covers and hull plates. In nearly 45 years since the incident, many explorers have surveyed and mapped the wreckage. In 1994, Fred Shannon organized a dive to the Edmund Fitzgerald that located a body, like James said, partially dressed in coveralls and still wearing a life jacket lying face up on the ocean on the lake floor. Sorry. And that's a good life jacket. It's sitting on the bottom. It wasn't that good because why didn't he float to the top? I'm trying out a new lead line. <laughs> In case you're afraid of radioactive particles. Maybe they got a, a bad, like they got their shipments mixed up and those were bulletproof vests. Oh, damn Kevlar! Or the, or the ones you wear when you get an x-ray. Well, it, it would rot, it would rot over time, right? Yeah. It would rot over time and, you know, the air would escape from it and whatever yeah. over time. And, yeah, you know, I get, maybe, yeah. maybe some kind of, you know, aquatic life pulled the body out of the ship, you know, to... Oh, yeah. That's true. That makes sense. And I'm sure I, there's like, you know, big catfish and sturgeons and stuff in there or something like that, you know. It's probably, when you bought it, it's probably like, hey, listen, this isn't, this isn't going to float for 10 years. Just for about, you know, a few days. <laughs> that's all you got. In your Which is all you should need, you yeah. know. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I'm wondering if they had like oh, life, life jackets from Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> or like ones on the plane where you pull the thing and it airs up. You yeah. Know? yeah, or your seat I don't is know. a flotation device. Demonstrate it, Chris Farley. It's a good yeah. thing. <laughs> In 1995, Canadian engineer Phil Newton, 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 used an atmosphere, what? I don't know. Does he have three names? Newton, N-U-Y-T-T-E-N. Newton, 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 Newton. Used an atmospheric dive suit to dive down to the wreck, where he retrieved the ship's bell and replaced it with a replica. He also placed a beer can in the pilot house. This one's for my homies. <laughs> was it Moosehead? I don't know what it was. I didn't even look. It should have been. It was something good. His puppers. Natty light. Although it's obvious that the storm ultimately led to the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, there are several different thing, differing hypotheses on just exactly how the storm caused the ship to sink. Storm had absolutely n nothing to do with no, it. That's a new theory. Storm meant shit. It was something totally different. That's to confuse you from the facts. The Edmund Fitzgerald hit an iceberg. The, the space laser hit it. <laughs> it was swamp gas. That's right. Uh, okay, one of these theories is the rogue wave theory. It was reported by Captain Cooper that several massive waves had hit the Arthur Anderson just a few minutes before radio and radar contact with Fitzgerald was lost. Another theory is that the hatch cover clamps, those clamps, oh, man. were not properly fastened. And they that more clamps. Need more. <laughs> and that water had been slowly seeping in throughout the storm until the weight was too much for the ship to handle. Not good on a boat. This is bolstered by the fact that footage of the wreck does apparently show several damaged or loose clamps. However, that same footage also shows several collapsed hatch covers, which arguably would only occur from the weight of massive waves and water suddenly coming on board, thus buckling the covers, filling the holds with water and sinking the ship. So they don't think it really happened that way. Okay. A third theory is that the Fitz had unknowingly damaged her hull by raking it along the rocks when she went too close to Six Fathoms Shoal. 
Proponents of this theory claim that the handrail damage reported by McSorley could only occur if the ship hogged during shoaling. And this means that the bow and stern bent downward as the midsection was raised by the shoal, pulling the rail tight and snapping the cables. But still the storm. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. You're just saying like the storm, yes, but what what from the storm caused it? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's several theories. Okay. This makes total sense as the Edmund Fitzgerald did sail dangerously close to the shore and there are well-known shallow reefs in that area. However, divers later inspected this area of the reef and reported no obvious evidence of grounding or a recent collision. Okay. Next one. Uh, Another hypothesis is that the ship suffered a structural failure due to the violent conditions of the sea that night. Diver Frank Shannon, who we mentioned earlier, stated... This placement does not support the hypothesis that the ship plunged to the bottom in one piece, breaking apart when it struck the bottom. If this were true, the two sections would be much closer together. In addition, the angle, repose, and mounding of clay and mud at the site indicates the stern rolled over on the surface, spilling taconite ore pellets from its severed cargo hold, and then landed on portions of the cargo itself. However, this too is debated... The USCG and the NTSB investigated this possibility. Everybody concludes different shit. Mm-hmm. This is their conclusion. The proximity of the bow and stern sections on the bottom of the Lake Superior indicated that the vessel sank in one piece and broke apart either when it hit the bottom or as it descended. Therefore, Edmund Fitzgerald did not sustain a massive fr- structural failure of the hull while on the surface. The final position of the wreckage indicated that if the Edmund Fitzgerald had capsized, it must have suffered a structural failure before hitting the lake bottom. The bow section would have had to right itself, and the stern portion would have had to capsize before coming to rest at the bottom. It is, therefore, concluded that the Edmund Fitzgerald did not capsize on the surface. Okay. So again. Yeah. Who knows? I felt like that's pretty solid. I, I- I think that you'd be able to tell. I mean, that makes sense to me. It does. That means nothing, though, but it makes sense to at least me. Well, and you know, the Titanic, it ripped it, but of course, we're pretty sure that it broke apart on the surface, Mm -hmm. according to the movie. (laughs) Well, I think that's pretty much accepted that it it tilted and then it broke and then it fell back down and then it sank. I mean, I think that's kind of the accepted uh, by most people. So so what what I'm kind of envisioning... Since, you know, they didn't actually see it go down. It was just like instantly almost in their minds. Sure. Instantly just gone. Yeah. It's almost like it like rolled over and then just sank down. But, you know, it probably would have floated upside down or something at that point. Yeah. But it depends on how much cargo there was, where the cargo was, how, you know, if it's nose, you know, like if it would go nose up and all that and then break apart like it showed in the Titanic movie. Yeah. Or if it would have just taken on too much water and just, you know, slowly went down or quickly went down or... And and then what do you think about where it broke apart? Because it broke apart somewhere in that process. Oh, yeah. And like, who knows? To me, it seems like if the ship tried to angle up just like in Titanic, that's when it would break apart. Uh Like if you got half in the water. stress. Yeah, man. And if you look at a picture of the Edmund Fitzgerald, it has the pilot house on the nose and it has quarters on the back, but all that in the middle is way shallower. It's like the bulk right. of it is on the two ends. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. And everything in the middle oh. was the cargo holds. Uh-huh. You know, and they talk about overloading? They I, mean, didn't, I didn't see that. Yeah, because, I mean, it had, I don't know how heavy those, whatever that was. Iron ore, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the teconite in the cargo hold would have added to, I mean, 
I think it would it would make it the ship more stable. Seems like yeah, in a heavy sea like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, it's almost like too. I mean, what if it what if it kind of failed in the middle, mm-hmm. and you know the Tekkenite, a lot of it spilled out, you know, into the sea, and it caused a, just a huge weak spot that got bigger and bigger as the Tekkenite, you know, kind of fell out. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just kind of envisioning how it might happen based on gravity and things like that. I yeah. can kind of picture when the payload spills from the bottom, the two ends pop up and they're pushed apart. Yeah. Just from the force of, it's like Newton's second or first law or whatever, where, you know, all that force presses the two sides yeah. apart. And you could see it. I mean, I could, I'm looking at a picture Sam's got up there right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could see if it got weak in the middle, that you could see how it could just kind of... Snap? It would do this. Oh, okay, yeah. Both both ends, and it would raise up in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it was weaker in the middle, and it could kind of break apart like that. Yeah. Because of the way the ship's built, most of the, you know, if the stuff's built out of the middle, uh, most of the mass is at either end at that point. And that, by the way, is how they theorize... The handrails broke on the sides. Was that the middle buckled up? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Put tension the, on them because if, if each end would have dipped down, it would have buckled up. In yeah. The middle. So maybe that had happened previous and it already caused damage and broke those handrails because he, he, you know, they, the ship was around for at least a few minutes after that because he radioed out, "I've got damaged handrails." Uh, yeah. And then, but yeah, so I, I kind of agree. I think it kind of broke apart, probably on top. And that's what caused it to sink. Up. I almost think like a wire too, how you break a wire, you'd like keep bending it back and forth until it breaks. So yeah. maybe it bent up first and then it weakened it. So then it bent down and that's when all that, that's when all the material has spilled out. Yeah. As the ship keeps getting hit with waves, it's going to cause It's just doing more. Yeah. yeah. To where it's that's just right. kind of, kind of like keeps bending it further and further, you know. Breaking yeah. news. Probably generating heat. We just heat. solved this thing. We just solved this bitch. You know, generating yeah. heat and making, making it even weaker, bum, bum, you know, yeah. as it gets hotter. Because how many know, of you, us. You bend a wire, you know, and it yes. gets hot. Sure. Know? I was also yeah, going to say, how many of us have, have sawed most of the way, hacksawed through a piece of metal, and then you just wiggle the end back and forth yeah. when you're done to break it. Friction. Yeah, man. Yeah. Solved it. Got it. Solved. Well, Next. We're, we're done. No, I'm kidding. We have one more hypothesis. Okay. The final hypothesis. Oh, by the way, I did, want to, I did find too. There was another ore carrier. And I don't think it was quite as big as the Edmund Fitzgerald, but it was the Daniel J. Morrill. Um, it in 1966 in a storm, it broke in half on the surface and sank. And it was, oh, okay. it was yeah, a freighter. Oh yeah. There's the Edmund Fitzgerald. There it is. Yeah. I mean, skinny in the middle, fat on the two ends. Yep. Well, the final hypothesis, I, I, I tried to be the bigger guy. I went past that. I want that known. Ivan's 13, now Joe's 15. Yes, I've outgrown you. We've got real reversal. Wait, wait, my, my comment was, was straight. It wasn't for comedic value. It was a straight it was. comment. So someone had to jump on that to make it funny. And Sam did it by laughing. Well, Sam, yes, Sam's 13 and a half. Yeah, there you go. There go. We'll go with that. The final hypothesis is that the ship suffered from some sort of topside damage. The USCG surmised that this damage could have occurred by the collision of a large object, object like a log. I think this is stupid. You're like, how big of a log would it have taken? Like a California redwood was floating in there. It's log. It's log. <laughs> it's heavy. It's wood. My son loves that song. Stimpy? Yeah, my son loves that song. He wants to hear it over and over again. Well... The sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald was obviously devastating to the friends and family uh, of those aboard the doomed ship, but it also reverberated through the shipping industry and even the world. Mm-hmm. The mighty Edmund Fitzgerald, the pride of the Great Lakes, had disappeared beneath the waves. 
Just two weeks later, on November 24th, 1975, Newsweek published a story on the disaster titled The Cruelest Month. A musician named Gordon Lightfoot read that article and was so inspired that he wrote a six and a half minute long anthem that we opened the show with called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. He released the song the following year on his Summertime Dream album and it hit number one on the Billboard charts. Amazing song. So, Amazing artist. Yeah. God we, sunk. We all talked about how we were all fans before the show. God sunk the so Edmund Fitzgerald to give us that song. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Probably, yeah. He's a great. He's a great artist. Yeah, great he is. Songs. As I was informed one time, they say that he's the Canadian Bob Dylan. So I do want to say too before we stop. Uh, this was this subject matter was requested by Sam. Amazing topic. Yeah. Sam. So That's good. Awesome. Good like one, Sam. I think we've all said we love the song, and so I was like, "Hey, Joe, do you think there's any meat on the bone of just the actual wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald?" And uh, you know, we went through like a. Two months of of music. That uh, thing's a like, prime rib. There's plenty of meat. <laughs> yeah, there definitely was that, and that's awesome. I'm glad you did that research, Joe. Thank is, you. Is there like a, a museum or anything or a memorial? There's a memorial because that's where that bell ended up. That uh, okay, Fred yeah. Shannon went down and got, but I don't know exactly where it's at. Yeah. I didn't read that, but I do know that's where that bell ended up. And a whole debate in in that um, going down and 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 uh, doing that archaeology. Some people say you shouldn't touch it at all. What do you guys think about that? They say that's basically a graveyard. So that there's that with the Titanic. I keep, we keep talking about I Titanic. I mean, to me, it's surprising, you know, being there in the Great Lakes. And, you know, we think about it, it's only 540 feet down or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's that, that's a hard dive. Somebody would have to f- have to fund that to do yeah. like a recovery mission. But But you would think, you know, it's been nearly 50 years now. You know, the U.S. government or the Canadian government, wherever the responsibility lies, wherever, you know, whatever country the, the, the ruins are actually in. My guess is they're saying no because it's more recent than, I don't know, I, I just I just think they're probably saying no. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it was surprising to me, you know, years ago when I watched a document, documentary on this that that they didn't, you know, do like a recovery mission later on, you know, even years later to try to recover remains and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I think that should be done. I, I would think the families would want their remains back to bury properly. Uh, that's my yeah, know. yeah. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's. I mean, it's probably a safety issue for the people doing a recovery mission. But but still, you know, you, I don't know. It just surprised me that that they that they hadn't done that. Yeah. So, do you guys ever watch like abandoned place videos where someone goes to an, an abandoned? I love those. Yeah. So, the, in South Carolina, I was, I was scrolling through those and I found this guy's in South Carolina, and there's a train like a Civil War air train that was going through a tunnel in some city in South Carolina and there was a cave-in and they had numerous cave-ins all the time, but this one was really bad and it actually encased that train and there's people on it still to this day. Wow. But they basically figured out, they were going to try to get the the victims out, but then day after day, they realized this is way too unsafe. So they are still there. And Whoa. It would be incredibly expensive. And also now there's so many houses above it they can't risk going in there to try to get it, so they're still there in this in this. Man, that's crazy. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Well, and I know what is the reason for you know when I went to Hawaii, when we went to Pearl Harbor. Um, there's is it the uh, is it the Arizona? Mon- that's, I think it is the Arizona that you that has the monument over it. I'm sorry, and it has the oil that mm-hmm. comes up every few minutes. So there's are. all the bodies are still inside the Arizona as well. Is it the uh, is it Tunnel Hill? 
Is that it? I think so. That okay. sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. It's in Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. Sorry. I knew it was a southern state, but yeah. I mean, I mean, I just, I guess, back to the 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 Arizona, if that's what it is. Uh, I guess it's just uh, they want to. It's a graveyard, basically. Do I guess disturb, so. You know, because that definitely isn't way down. Like you can see the ship. You know, yeah, it's right there. Right. So maybe yeah, it's just like a a solemn place. I don't know. So hey, man. And on a high note, I think that's all we got on the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. By the way, if you're listening, still. Thanks for sticking around throughout our break. We're just glad to be back. We're just so glad to be back. Woo-wee. All right, anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Good night. <laughs> Let me tell you about some fellas I know named Ivan, Sam, and Joe. They got themselves a little podcast, you know. And they talk about everything under the sun they find interesting, spooky, or fun. They sure ain't trying to impress no one. The remedy to too much time on your hands is take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. They talk about killers, monsters, and cults. French mates from hell, disappeared folks. Occasionally throw in a few dad jokes. They try to make every story extra nice by adding their own ginger spice. Not one time or two, but thrice. The remedy to too much time on you hands is take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. I'm sure these fellas will be around for quite a spell Cause there sure ain't no shortage of stories to tell Cause this old world's as weird as hell But hell, even if nobody listened You know they'd maintain a fine disposition Cause shooting the breeze is kind of their mission Remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti The remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti